Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cole. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we'll be thinking and talking about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we want to talk about the way in which the reputation of cities functions in the world and how city reputation relates to national reputation and, dare I even say, national brand. Now, Mm. uh, Simon, I know this is like uh, asking you to talk about the dog that's been following you around since you were at the fair 30 years ago, but uh, uh, could you talk a little bit about how you see national brands and cities fitting together do they fit together where do they where do they figure well let me let me do a one minute uh, digest of my standard rant about the idea of place branding people who've heard any of any of my stuff before can can just check out for a moment while i do this but this is really for the benefit of anybody who hasn't heard me say this before i'm often accused of being the guy who invented the term uh, nation branding and it's a wicked lie. I didn't. The term I think I may have invented, well, I know I invented, was nation brand. Totally different idea. Nation brand is just a static idea. It's, a, it's an observation. Places, not just nations, cities, regions, they have images, and those images are very important to them in a globalized world. Places with powerful, positive images find that everything is easy and everything is cheap. They can get more investment. They can get more tourists. They can get more talent. They can sell more products at a higher premium. It is um, a... A structural asset. Places with weak or negative images find that everything is difficult and everything is expensive, and that's why place image matters. But to say that places have brand images is just a sort of superficial metaphor, which carries a lot of truth. That's place brand, but place branding is different. Ing makes it sound like a promise. It makes it sound as if there's a, a process, a technique that the governments of places can use in order to enhance the image of their places. And I know of no such technique. I've been researching this field, as as you know, for many years, and I've never seen any correlation whatsoever between the measurable images of places and the amount of money that their governments spend on sending out positive messages about them. It just doesn't seem to work. And I don't think it works because people aren't very interested in other places. And even if they are, they're not going to listen to evident propaganda from foreign governments. So the images of places do exist and they are very significant and they are very powerful, but they're very slow moving, enormous cultural constructs. And they take decades and generations to form. It's also a myth that they can uh, be spoilt very quickly. I found that they are just as hard to damage as they are to build. The best example of that being the United States of America, which has been trying to damage its image for about 300 years and still hasn't succeeded. <laughs> Temporarily, it could depress it, but you, you know, it, it, it's just a, um, it, it's just a fixed asset. Your, your image in, in, in most cases. So, I'm glad I got that off my chest. I think we should, obviously, you and I know this well. We won't use the term branding because it's very misleading. But that doesn't take away from the fact that the images of of places are a very interesting and very significant phenomenon, significant culturally, economically, politically, and socially. What I like about the term brand is that it goes to the emotions. What we're talking about when we're talking about cities or countries with a strong image are cities and countries with which people, to which people react emotionally. 
same at the bottom end of the scale too. The places that have a terrible image are also places that people react to emotionally, mm. that people go when they, yeah. when they imagine being dropped there. And that's somehow caught by the idea of a positive, a, a positive brand, the aspect of aspiration, emotional connection. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the reasons why why I used the fatal term in the first place. And it's one of the reasons why I think it caught on. Another reason is because this idea that brands have value, they have equity. And the concept of brand equity for places is also quite interesting. I mean, more, more recently, I've, I've claimed that the differences in images between nations is one of the main factors driving global inequality. Because poor countries not only have to cope with weak institutions and weak economies and weak infrastructure and all the rest of it, they also have to battle constantly against the headwind of this negative image, which means that even the good stuff they do uh, tends to get overlooked or ascribed to uh, negative um, motivations or causes. So this is really a very, very significant point. And it's a shame that in the years uh, since the term has become common, so much of the research and so much of the discussion on the subject has been about quote unquote branding. It's been about communication campaigns and they don't work. So it's just wasted breath really, as well as wasted money. Having said that, it is also very important to make the clear distinction between sector specific promotion, promotion of tourism, promotion of, uh, for talent, promotion of events, promotion of exports, promotion for uh, foreign investment, that's different. That is something that you can market. I wouldn't say necessarily brand, but you can market it. And it is a marketing operation. And yes, indeed, you should use the tools of marketing communications to promote tourism, to promote investment, because it works. And because the competitors of places are all doing it, demonstrably, demonstrably if you spend more money and do a better job of promoting tourism, you will get more tourists. So there's even a fairly clear return on investment. But that's a very different idea from branding. And I wish people would be clearer about these two things because we conflate them at our peril. Right. And the billions of dollars that are wasted around, around the world every, every, every few years by governments imagining that they're somehow upgrading the image of their country when all they're really doing is running tourism campaigns. It's 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 poor practice. Yes. <laughs> so, but um, we need to talk about particular places that have particular cities that have strong image. And unlike the nation brands index, when you look at the city brands index, hmm. you see quite a bit of volatility even though you know in any given year people really like to talk and think about paris london and new york why is it so much more volatile than the national brands well i think it's probably because cities are something that it's easier for people to engage with directly and therefore in some ways cities do perform a function more closely analogous to that of a product in people's lives and given that they are in some important ways analogous to products, I also think that it may be possible to have more success in quote-unquote branding cities than, than countries. Because a nation is in the end uh, very often a, a confusing, complex, contradictory, heterogeneous thing. It's a notional thing in many cases, unless it happens to be an island. I mean, it's you know, sort of human-made borders. It's a, it's a legal construct. 
The city, on the other hand, is quite a definite place and it has a specific climate, it has a specific look, and it has a specific location, ubication. It is where it is and it is what it is. It's really rather a different thing from a nation. A nation is a sort of cloudy idea. And so when people think about cities, they think of them in quite concrete terms. Would I go there? Would I live there? Would I migrate there? Um, would I invest there? Would I, would I like to be there right now? And in fact, the questionnaire that we use for the City Brands Index is unavoidably a much more practical one, a much, much, much closer, much more linked to people's imagined or real experience of places. And I think that's the reason for the volatility, because people are thinking to themselves year on year, not, oh, what's my view of France? Well, your view of France is likely to remain unchanged for most of your life. But your view of Paris might differ depending on what you've heard about it recently, whether you're going to go there, whether you... So you might actually think, well, now is not the time to go to Paris because, you know, I might get caught in a strike or, you know, the hotel's surrounded by people in, in yellow jackets. or And we did, in fact, you, you know, you can see those kinds of movements in the data. I mean, well, one thing that, that I think is really interesting is that if I look across findings of good country and nation brands index, that Scandinavia always does well. And yet it doesn't seem to do well in the cities. The, the countries that really show up in the other data, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, you know, Oslo's no, nowhere. Why do you think that is? Do people just not feel that way about the Scandinavian and the Northern European cities? Well, on the whole, those are not, they're not important cities. They're lovely cities in their own way. They're, they're not there on, this, on the same scale as, at scale also in the literal sense, as Paris, London, Hong Kong, New York, what have you. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the cities that tend to cluster at the top of the City Brands Index are the ones that loom large in people's worldview. And however much you may admire the Scandinavian society or the Nordic lifestyle, Oslo is just not a city that looms large in, in people's imaginarium. Uh, it's very interesting that um, uh, Copenhagen um, actually has, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, most years, a slightly better image than any of the other Nordic yeah. capitals. And, and I would hypothesize that that's simply because there was once a song or a musical or a show, who even remembers what, called Wonderful Copenhagen. And phrases like that. They... So the Danny Kaye, uh, yeah. Hans Andersen film. And they stick in the mind. And, and there's The Little Mermaid, which, although very small, is a visually recognisable symbol, like the, the little boy doing a wee-wee in Brussels. These are the things that people remember. I think there's another thing that has to be said about cities, which is very important in this context, and that is that cities don't do foreign policy. So uh, they don't get um, tainted with a lot of the negative stuff that nations get tainted with because mm. the governments of nations play a role in the community of nations and they can make themselves very unpopular and occasionally quite popular through their foreign policy. The cities escape all of this blameless. It doesn't matter yeah, what So happens. New York has had no, there's no Trump bump. No Trump bump for New York. New York is still New York. In the case of American cities, because over the years, American cities and American regions have done so much deliberate promotion, particularly in the early years of the 20th century and the later years of the 19th, to attract people to them. They're very powerfully branded. And there are a number of American cities and indeed American states that are more powerful than most nations. 
New York, I, I can't do direct comparisons, but it certainly looks, if you hold the Nation Brands Index and the City Brands Index together, it looks as if, for example, New York is a more powerful brand than all but the top 10 most famous nations. And the same probably goes for San Francisco. But then again, the other curiosity about the City Brands Index, which you may well have noticed, is the things that people do associate with cities are often a little bit unexpected and sometimes extraordinarily out of date. So when you ask people, as we do in the City Brands Index, to name um, just free association, what is the, the thing that you associate most strongly with San Francisco, for example, a very large number of people will say the earthquake which happened uh, 99 years before we asked that question. Uh, and so almost nobody we were speaking to was alive when it happened. And again, it, it, these are ideas that get stuck in the human imaginarium, or it may just be that San Francisco hasn't done anything more exciting than the earthquake in the last hundred and whatever years. The, the, one, the one that puzzles me is Melbourne. What do people say when you say, what, well, what would you want to see in Melbourne? Because, uh, you know, I can see that it's a livable city, but it doesn't have that kind of uh, three iconic things I would visit if I had uh, 24 hours in Melbourne. Yes, well, I looked into this uh, because it puzzled me as well. And I discovered that um, the majority of the sample, which, by the way, for both indexes represents over 70 percent of the world's population. So it's really a, quite, quite a quite a broad sample of, of, of humanity. The only thing that the world knows about Melbourne is that it's a city in Australia. And they just like Australia. that They much. like Australia. So they like it. Sydney only scores higher than Melbourne because they actually know something about Sydney and they have a picture and a postcard in their mind of the Opera House. Um, the, the visual imagery is very important and it plays a role. Again, this is another of the reasons why we often say that cities are, are, are more like products, more like brands than countries are. Because countries can, can survive in people's minds quite independently of the, the, the imagery, the landscapes, the landmarks. Um, cities, on the other hand, are often identified by their visual iconography. So there's a definite correlation between the cities that rank high in the City Brands Index and the ones that have got powerful visual icons. So the, the, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, for example, is the most recognized visual icon on the planet, according to the City Brands Index. And it's a very large part of the reason why people can, the reason why people can pin the idea of Paris to their minds. But this then goes to another thing that you and I have spoken about over the years, and that's the value of the mega event. Mm. Uh, and, it, you know, the Eiffel Tower is from a World's Fair. The Atomium in Brussels is from a World's Fair. The mm. Space Needle in uh, Seattle comes from a World's Fair. But, yeah. you know, hosting these mega events, when cities do it, it directs attention to the city and creates something that seems to be, you know, in these cases at least, has really lived on to define so do you think that, that for a city, at least, mega events make sense? Actually, no, I, I'm sceptical about that. I, don't, I know I you are. I, I thought I'd got <laughs> you. I, thought I'd... <laughs> I, th I, think the, I think the event itself, well, all of, the, all of the research suggests that the event itself is very quickly forgotten. The event was the excuse to build the monument. And those cities could have probably saved themselves the trouble and expense of uh, holding the mega event and just built the Eiffel Tower or the Space Needle or the Atomium or whatever it was, and would have reaped the benefits of that. Th these, th these, these things seem to matter. The events themselves, well, I don't know, I'm skeptical about them. I mean, every time there's, the expo is the dodgiest one of the lot. Every time there's an expo, I get cities ringing me up, or countries rather, saying, um, should we exhibit in this? And uh, I always say no, uh, because 
I mean, let's just take it down to the very, very most basic level. Let's just say this is about marketing your country. Well, the art of marketing is to stand out from the competition. Why would you pay an awful lot of money to go walk into a forest disguised as a tree? I mean, <laughs> that, it's, the, it's camouflage. It's the opposite of marketing, because what do you do? You find an enormous space full of city, uh, cities and countries putting on a, a display, building a pavilion. It gives you the least prominence and the least standout of anything you could possibly do. Well, there's enough to say on this one that we need to reserve that this particular discussion for another day, um, because I would certainly want to come want to come back on that. But I do think you, you know, there's something to what you say. One of the things that strikes me about cities is that at a time when we see stalemate at the national at the level of national politics, cities do seem to have a coherent mandate for their leadership. And you look at the kind of, for example, the, the mayor of Paris, who has over 50% of the vote, the mayor of LA last year, he, he ended up with, uh, you know, in the 80s, I think, in terms of percentage of the vote. Uh, you know, these are these are numbers that would, if we saw them in a national election, we would think they were cooking the books. And, you know, that surely gives a city a tremendous opportunity to, well, it, it suggests that it's possible to build confidence with inhabitants of a city, to, to pull them together, and but also to represent yourself externally with, with a certain mandate that you really can say, we in this city are like this, we believe this, we want to do this in, in, in the world. So, you know, it does seem that a city is a viable building block of uh, external diplomacy. I think it boils down to something we mentioned in an earlier episode, the fact that uh, that a city is a governable entity. It's of a manageable size. And the mayor of a city can do, it is possible to do a good job as the mayor of a city. These days, it's almost impossible to do a good job as the president or prime minister of a nation. When you're attempting, a, a, we were talking, I think it was in the context of, of Mexico, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of of uh, citizens spread over a vast geographical area. I don't regard that as a governable entity. All that leaders can do with this, most nations being the size that they are, is to try and desperately hold things together for a few years until they're booted out. Cities are an entirely different proposition. A city is more like a corporation in many ways. There's, you already start with more coherence and fellow feeling it's got, generally speaking, much less to do with party politics than the government of a nation has. It's generally speaking a more technocratic deal. And merit gets recognised, good management gets recognised. And if you do a good job, there's a chance you'll be re-elected, which is one of the reasons why, as we've said on a number of occasions, um, cities are starting to present themselves more and more now as viable entities in the international sphere, as agile and sometimes quite influential uh, diplomatic players and we've spoken before about the possible return of something like the medieval city-states of of, of uh, Europe and I think there's every possibility of that. If I wanted to run something I think I'd rather run a country than a, than a, I'd rather run a city than a, than a country. Building on this can we see examples of good cities mm. or do you think we see examples of good cities in otherwise ungood countries? That's a really interesting one, yeah. Because, I mean, ever since I first started developing the idea of the good country, one of the things I haven't yet done 
is to have any serious conversations or discussions about the idea of the good city. There will be at some stage a good city index. That's not an easy thing to do because unlike the good country index, it requires primary research and that means funding. You don't just go to the UN. <laughs> well, the UN doesn't doesn't measure cities in the way that it measures nations, unfortunately. But but it's a it's a thing I do intend to do, subject to finding the funding for it. My sense is that people don't perform that calculation in their mind about cities in the same way that they do about nations. It's very clear from analysing the Nation Brands Index data and everything else I've looked at that people do see countries as being players in an international neighbourhood. And therefore, the thing they're most interested in is, is this a benign player, a helpful player, a good neighbour or not? Cities, I think less so because, as I said earlier, they're understandably not perceived as being international actors. They don't make policy in in the real sense that nations do. Um, They don't go to war against each other. Um, There's relatively little they can do that's or perceived to be little they can do that's 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 helpful or unhelpful outside their borders. I think the reality is quite different. I think cities can and do play a really important role in making the world work better, but it's perhaps not recognised. A point you've made previously is that international image is all about relevance mm. and relevance to an individual, not necessarily relevance to not relevance to the people who who live in that live in that. Right place year round. Uh, you know, what strikes me is that when you look at the strongest images of cities, often they are diverse places hmm. and that they, in their promotion, are able to say, oh, we have a neighborhood that is Chinese or a neighborhood yeah. that is Italian. And uh, or in the case of Melbourne, we've got a lot of Greek people live here. We've got yes. people from Indonesia. And, and, and that's part of the charm of the city. And, you know, I suppose it's ironic that with European cities doing better than, for the most part, than cities in East Asia, Hmm. but the European cities are still saying, hey, but people from East Asia live Hmm. in our city. Yes. The more inclusive the city is, it seems to do better than the city that is only for people who live in that place or that presents itself as more homogenous. Is that your sense of the... Of the, the most admired cities? Yes, absolutely. I, I think cosmopolitanism is an inherent quality of cities. It's something that most people expect of all cities and like in all cities. And the same is not true um, for, for, for smaller communities or rural areas. So very often, I, I, when I was advising the government of Latvia ages and ages ago, they asked me to develop a strategy for, for Latvia, try and help it to engage more productively in the international community. And And over the months that I was doing this project, I spoke to lots and lots of Latvians um, and almost everybody I spoke to outside Riga didn't want this project to happen. They wanted to be left alone. And that was because, you know, the poor Latvians have only really been a sovereign state for a very short time. And the whole of their collective memory for centuries previously was of being sat on by foreign bullies, whether it was the Germans or the Swedes or the Russians. And they just didn't want it. They didn't want to be quote unquote branded. So what I ended up recommending uh, for, for Latvia, and I told this story in my, in my book, was that they should forget trying to quote unquote brand Latvia and they should brand Riga. Yeah. Um, because nobody in Riga minded the idea of lots of people coming to look at them and do business with them and to, to, to stay there and to engage with them. Very often you do get, well, this is well known, of course, that the, the, the mood, the character of a city is very often different from the mood and the character of, of rural areas or, or, or towns. 
we know that there were huge differences in voting patterns for Brexit, depending on whether it was people in cities or whether it was people in rural areas. And that's reflected also on the other side from the way that they're perceived. So when you think of cities, as we said right at the beginning, you're thinking in a more practical sense, would I be warmly welcomed if I went there as a visitor or as an investor or as a business traveler or as a student? And you want them to be more cosmopolitan because you want them to be more warm and welcoming and accepting. And that's why mm. somewhere like like New York ranks higher than somewhere like Vienna, um, because Vienna is perceived to be culturally somewhat more hermetic mm-hmm. and homogeneous. And New York is perceived to be very porous and very permeable and very open and welcoming. And nobody even knows you're there. And that's great. People like that. I think that's all we have time for. Thanks so much for listening. This is People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cull. And I will forever be Simon Anhalt.